Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kissing. And this is a show for you if you're bored with people arguing on the internet over subjects they know nothing about. The Trigonometry, you don't pretend to be the experts, we ask the experts. As you can see, we're not in our normal environment. We're recording this at the Battle of Ideas, which many of you are going to be, so come and say hello if you're around. And our brilliant guest this week is a journalist and the co-founder of Subverse Media, Emily Molly, welcome to Trigonometry. Hi there, good to be here. It's good to have you. Thank you so much for coming to talk to us. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know who you are, tell us a little bit about who are you, how are you, where you are, what has been the journey that brings you to this <laughs> very chair? Oh, wow. Okay. So um, I'm an independent journalist. I co-founded Subverse News, and um, I've been doing a lot of on-the-ground reporting around the, around the world. Um, in the U.S., I cover certain topics. One of my main focuses is social movements. Um, so within the U.S., uh, I've been covering sort of the rise of white nationalism, Antifa, and then around the world, I've also been covering things like the Hong Kong uh, protests, uh, the Yellow Vest movement, and then also the Catalan independence protests. And you mentioned earlier when we were talking just before that uh, you, were, you were covering the Donald Trump election mm -hmm. campaign in 2016. You were not a credentialed journalist at the time. Yeah. So you had to wait in line for six hours and you found yourself chatting to people and finding out what their views were. And as part of that, you could kind of see the, his election coming. Yeah. So that's quite an interesting thing about actually journalism where you actually talk to people. It's quite unusual these days, isn't it? Yeah, and it, it really illuminated to me just how much of the press in general kind of sits in a bubble and in, uh, you know, you could call it an echo chamber where they're bouncing the same ideas off of each other and they're not really getting the sort of real world view of normal people. So um, I followed pretty much all of the candidates in 2016 and by just sitting in line, standing in line with people and chatting with them about what they care about, their main issues, you kind of get a feel for what they what they pay attention to, what they don't care about. Like a lot of the Trump supporters I know didn't really care about what the press was saying about Trump. In fact, I think it made them like him more. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, it was also just being able to see how um, unenthused a lot of people were about Hillary Clinton as well. Um, seeing how like extremely enthused a lot of people were about Bernie Sanders. And then you kind of had sort of, uh, I guess, lukewarm uh, sort of uh, enthusiasm for other Republican candidates. So, yeah, it was a really interesting experience talking to people. And Emily, so we're talking about how there's this disconnect between the mainstream media and the people. And the mainstream media were famous in that they didn't predict and they didn't see Trump coming. Why do you think they're so detached? Is it because they come from one part of society? or? Well, um, that's a really good question. I think uh, a lot of journalists now uh, come from a lot of the same background. Uh, you know, a lot of them go to school for journalism and get taught by the same people. Um, and not everyone goes to school journalism for journalism, but I think the more you have people who spend more of their time around journalists, and this is another thing that's pretty true about Twitter, is like a lot of Twitter is just journalists talking to other journalists. And yeah, I mean, it, it is people talking and reaffirming each other's beliefs. And when you have people disagreeing with their viewpoints and opinions, then there must be something wrong with that person because everyone else in their bubble agrees with them. So I think it is... Uh, 
I mean, even after Trump was elected, you saw a bunch of these media outlets saying, oh, well, we need to go into middle America and talk to people and figure out why this happened. And it's like, well, you could have done that before. (laughs) (laughs) And then maybe you wouldn't have looked so foolish. And what did they miss? Uh, So you talked about people's enthusiasm, but what were some of the issues on the campaign trails that were enthusing Bernie supporters? Uh, Why was Hillary not interesting to people? Why was Trump so popular with the people that you talked Mm. to? I think a lot of it had to do with economic issues, um, not so much social issues. Uh, A lot of the people who were more Bernie supporting, um, the younger people were more interested in social issues, as well as student debt, which is just a huge crushing problem for Mm. young people in America right now. But uh, for Donald Trump supporters specifically, I do believe economic issues and then some social issues like addiction, like the opioid epidemic. Um, A lot of people just think the status quo was putting them in these situations where nothing was improving, nothing was really changing. And how do you change things? You get somebody who's a total outsider in, in charge. And I think that's really what they wanted. And, you know, it's there was sort of this attitude towards the press where a lot of people felt like they weren't being represented fairly. And so when you see them misrepresenting Donald Trump or the things that he said, they felt very... Um, you know, they, they felt a lot more in touch with what he was saying and how he was treated than other other candidates. And what's interesting about the mainstream media is that they've made mistakes. And, you know, in, in a way, we all make mistakes. Of course we do. But what seems baffling with them is that they don't seem to have learned from their mistakes. In fact, they just seem to be doubling down. Oh, my God. Yeah. CNN <laughs> is like the perfect example of that. But uh, um, you have to kind of look at their incentives at that point, too. Uh, they had the Trump bump during the 2016 election, and then after he was elected... That sounds like a sex position, doesn't it? The Trump bump. Come <laughs> <laughs> on, baby, we're going to do the Trump bump. And not concerned uh, involved. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, they saw that it was profitable, and so they, they doubled down. They kept talking Trump, Trump, Trump. And, you know, um, a lot of other outlets followed suit with that. It got more clicks. It got more... Uh, a bigger, it got a bigger audience, and... I don't know. I just it's not sustainable, though. At a certain point, people do want to hear about real issues again. And unfortunately, a lot of real issues have been going uncovered or uh, just have been minimized because everyone is so focused on what Trump tweeted. And do you think part of the problem as well is that the media and I've seen it as because I've worked in radio is that the media are terrified because their traditional ways of funding themselves, monetizing they're evaporating. Yeah, I absolutely think that's the case because uh, now it's it's more of a click economy, mm. and we've seen that failing. You see a lot of uh, media outlets in the U.S. digital outlets failing and laying people off and being bought up, like consolidating. And I really think you know you put your eggs in the advertising basket rather than focusing on what your community, what your audience uh, wants, and will support you for. Which I I think is why. So many more people are turning to subscription-based options. And, um, yeah, there just needs to be better options out there for people. Do you, do you think that's not partly a problem, though? Like, uh, we have a lot of subscription-based services in this country. And what I, I always feel is it forces people, you know, people have limited amounts of money. Mm-hmm. So you end up, like, buying a subscription to the one newspaper that you agree with. Yeah. And they just keep feeding you the same stuff that you like. And then you end up in even more of a bubble than you ordinarily would have done. Otherwise known as the Guardian model. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> well, the Guardian actually asked for donations. I'm, I actually, true. I'm actually talking about some of the newspapers I've written. For. Yeah. You know, the Telegraph, the Spectator. If you want to read a lot of that, you have to pay. And you know, if you if you're not going to buy a subscription to ten different outlets, which mm-hmm. most people 
or not, you end up with the guard, you know, not the guardian, the spectator view or the yeah. telegraph view or the whatever view. All great newspapers, please keep getting my articles into your newspapers. But, <laughs> uh, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's where I think, like, one of the issues is just how, um, yeah, I think it's just, it needs to almost be completely re reworked as an industry. I don't mm. believe in putting um, important news or just news in general behind a paywall. But if people want, like, behind-the-scenes content or, like, if they want more in-depth analysis on something, that takes more time, it takes more work. And I think some people are willing to throw down $3, $5 a month for some of those extras. 30 pounds for a mug, you never know. <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, with the, the clickbait thing, it's interesting to me and to get your perspective on it. I feel like the mainstream media, they, they are dying so quickly that they are desperate for clicks. They have now become the clickbait yeah. medium. <laughs> and it's us who are doing new media that are actually doing long form content in our mm -hmm. case or on the ground reporting in your case, really giving people a completely different view of what's happening. Mm -hmm. um, uh, do you think this is going to continue? Do you think the mainstream media will at some point go, actually, no, we've gone too far. We need to start doing things the way, mm -hmm. because their brand really, it's like substantive reporting historically. Yeah. And they are cr killing their own brand by doing this clickbait stuff, aren't they? Yeah, I think uh, it just needs to be, completely reworked the media landscape and how it funds itself and how it, I think uh, a lot of, like a lot of newspapers, at least in the US, I think uh, like the New York Times specifically has kind of ostracized a lot of their own audience by, by doing ridiculous clickbait or, um, yeah. And I think at that point they need to take a look at what they started as and what they've turned into and kind of figure out how to how to return to their roots of actual journalism rather than telling people what to think but i'm i'm not sure if they're i think you see a lot of outlets who are taking uh taking cues from new media um doing long form doing podcasts and trying to spread uh spread their content that way i don't know if it's sustainable for them to do that as well. I think, um, I think we're just seeing in general, people are gravitating towards new, new ways of digesting information and how they find it. And yeah, it does cause the problem of echo chambers again, still, but, um, yeah, you have sort of a, a saturated media market with commentators. And, um, I don't think mainstream news outlets can necessarily compete with, with like long form YouTube channels or, podcasts like Joe That's Rogan, yeah. <laughs> Joe Rogan, for example, like pulls millions, millions for mm. his podcast. Um, a lot of people go to him for information rather than, uh, because I'd rather hear Joe Rogan just shoot the shit with people. Mm. Um, they're not going to get that from media outlet. So they try to like, um, they try to do things like podcasts and long form discussions, but I'm not sure if it's going to take off the same way as some other channels would. And Emily, it seems to me that we, live in an age where people are more distrustful of mainstream media than mm -hmm. ever. Yeah. Is that because of the internet and it's just hyperbolized that? Or is it actually that people more and more are just switching off and thinking to themselves, you know what, I do not want to engage with this anymore? Um, I think there's sort of a combination of, um, if people see something in the news that they know isn't true, then it's kind of a disillusionment mm. factor there. Um, like I know for me specifically, I used to take 
when I was younger, I kind of took the news at face value because you're, you, you, you trust them to tell you the truth. And then uh, when I started covering things and then seeing things in person and then seeing it reported in a totally different way, then I was like, okay, well, I guess I can't trust it anymore. And I think, um, especially when you have misrepresentations of what people say, you lose a lot of people that way. But I also think there's sort of um, this, uh, this bias towards, you know, whether it's partisan media where people don't want to believe it or... Yeah, but I do think for, for the most part, a lot of outlets have ended up shooting themselves in the foot just by reporting um, misinformation or disinformation. Mm-hmm. And it's also the, the style of, of conversation. I mean, I, I remember the Kathy Newman, Jordan Peterson interview. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you caught that. Yeah. And uh, the Channel 4 argument, if you're a producer, they just go, look, we did this great thing. We got... 20 million views on YouTube. Isn't that brilliant? I mean, we've just got a huge audience that we've attracted. But most people who watch that will never watch a Kathy Newman yeah. interview ever again. <laughs> That's a perfect example. Yeah, no, and exactly. It's like, they'll probably look at that and be like, wow, look how much controversy that generated. It got us a bunch of views. You know, bad press is still press. Uh, but again, they're not realizing how much of how much of the trust they lost from their audience by doing that kind of thing. And tell us about Subverse News, which is the organization that you co-founded. Uh, what is the the antidote that you're trying to offer? What's your angle, if you like? Um, we just pretty much try to s- report straightforward facts with context that like that shows what matters in a situation. We don't um, we don't cut up interviews to make people look stupid. We don't do uh, combative or uh, advocacy journalism. Um, we pretty much will interview people and let them say their thing for the most part. Like we'll obviously fact check if somebody is spouting nonsense, but at the same time, if you, I think there's some merit to hearing people lie. And even if they don't know they're, they're lying, if they're, if there's, if they're just basically talking about talking points, um, for example, like in a lot of the protests we cover, a lot of people will echo back just the talking points that they hear in the media and stuff like that. But um, there are some other situations where we can point specifically to somebody lying and saying this is actually what happened. Um, But we're basically just trying to come back with an approach that gives people information to make up their own minds. Sounds like a gateway to the far right. (laughs) (laughs) And on that note, that is something you have been looking at, haven't you? Looking at the far right. And is there a rise in the far right now? Uh, Very much one of the narratives that have been parroted in the mainstream media Mm -hmm. is that we have seen a rise in white nationalism, the far right. Is this true, particularly in America? I would say in America, uh, I don't think they ever really went away, but I think we're seeing them more... uh, um, more active in rallies, and recently it's it's been um, kind of a hyper focus of of some some outlets just saying, oh, you know, this is far right, this is extremism, this is uh, white nationalism, and I think people really do a disservice to um, to those actual problems when they will pretty much throw the label out on, on anything that they kind of suspect of being like alt right, if they even if they don't really know what that means. There are a lot of issues in the U.S. with white nationalism, white separatism, and just white supremacy in general. Uh, but I don't think it's as huge of an epidemic as a lot of people try to make it out. Um, I think after, you know, there is, a lot of it is reactionary where um, there were like white, live matter, white lives matter rallies that were white nationalist groups coming out and 
just trying to almost be antagonistic. Mm. A lot of them do. A lot of them do just want to cause controversy and hope that Antifa will show up so they can get into a street fight with them, and it's worked. And so, I don't know. I think um, they're getting a lot more attention than they should, and I think they're actually probably they're probably finding it easier to recruit with people throwing around terms like alt-right, white nationalists, because they're making it sound... Somebody who isn't necessarily that extreme will say, oh, well, they're calling me a white nationalist anyway. Maybe I, maybe I should like, maybe I should go with that group. That They might not be all that bad anyway. So people are being pushed into it, is what you're saying? I think by, by using the terms irresponsibly, I do think it is a recruiting tool. And I... So we both work in comedy, which is very woke and, you know, social justice, all the rest of it. Um, now, a lot of people have told me uh, that uh, Donald Trump is a white supremacist. He's a white supremacist president. He's a, he's a sign that, that we have a rise of the Nazis in the US. Would you agree? And what are your opinions on this? Because <laughs> oh, this man. is a narrative that is being pushed yeah, forward. Yeah, I hear it all the time, too. Yeah, yeah. People equating the, the Make America Great Again hat to the, the KKK hood. Mm. I think that is a gross oversimplification. Of, um, I don't doubt that, like, I don't know, I don't know him personally, but I also think, I don't think, uh, he's gotten, I don't think he's even been endorsed by a whole lot of white nationalist groups because, uh, it's too extreme. Um, but there are some things that that he said that people will try to jump on and be like, oh, look, he's supporting white supremacists, he's supporting white nationalists, but, um, there's, there's things that he does that white nationalists and white supremacists don't agree with, like mainly things with Israel. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I think it's a really gross oversimplification to call him a white supremacist or a white nationalist. All right. And what about on the other side? Because as you say, there are issues around white supremacy in the United States. Mm-hmm. There's residues of that uh, that is happening. You do see them showing up armed and being violent. Mm-hmm. And as you say, hoping for Antifa to turn up. But what about on the other side? What about Antifa? <laughs> what are they doing? What is what is your reading of them? Because you've yeah. reported on this quite a bit. Uh, so it's interesting because like, I've covered Antifa in various countries. And the U.S. one is kind of... Well, I want to say, I'll try to be nice, um, disjointed and disorganized. And I don't know, I don't know exactly what they're, they're aiming to achieve. Uh, but the ways that they're doing it by, uh, intimidating people, harassing people, I don't think that is an effective way to do whatever they're trying to do. Um, there's... I don't know. I think uh, a lot of people are searching for meaning right now because they don't have either they don't have much going on in their life to give them meaning. And when you put a cause in front of someone, you say, hey, let's be anti-fascist. Like, yeah, of course. Like, why wouldn't you be an anti-fascist? Mm. Nobody, nobody in their right mind would be pro-fascism, I believe. But when uh, pe- these kind of movements get co-opted by people who have either uh, I guess, I guess I'm, I'm still trying to be nice, but um, I, I want to say issues where they they really succumb to mob mentality and harassment, vandalism of people who aren't against them. Even um, yeah, I think. Uh, in the U.S. especially, they have some issues, and we see some of their violence. So we've had Andy No on the show, for uh-huh. example. Do you think they're a terrorist organization, Antifa? <laughs> 
I think you have individual members who are using tactics that you could call terrorism to achieve a political um, a political end. Um, I don't even think they can be considered an organization in themselves because just because you fly a flag doesn't mean you're part of an organization. Um, but I do think there are individuals who are using extremely, extremely like harsh tactics to intimidate people, to cause harm to people. And I would call those probably acts of terrorism if they're trying to achieve a specific political mean means. But again, I don't even know if they know what they want as far as demands or what, what their goals are. Well, anarchists being unsure about their goals. <laughs> and, and people on the left being disorganized. <laughs> well, I don't even think a lot of Antifa are even anarchists. I think uh, a lot of them are trend, like, a lot of them will try to be communist or socialist. I don't even know if they understand a lot of the, the systems that they endorse. Mm. But it's it's kind of just a trendy thing for a lot of a lot of people, it seems. And it does seem to be something that people put on a Twitter bio, anti-fascist. Yeah. And then, like you said, it sounds good. It sounds like something that you should be. We were all anti-fascist, aren't right. we? Right. Yeah. I would but, assume. So. Speak for yourself, man. <laughs> <laughs> but do you think part of the problem that is what happened with things like Charlottesville, where people think that there is a purpose for this movement? Yes, I think uh, there are specific things people look at, like Charlottesville, where they see somebody ran over a bunch of protesters. And, you know, that's that's another thing. It's just you have these certain situations that will give legitimacy to a move to people who think this movement is is a good cause. And in a lot of ways, are a lot of people's hearts are in the right place. But the tactics that are being used aren't necessarily effective or for the good of whatever movement they're trying to push. And so we've been talking a lot about, you know, active journalism and going in on the ground. We interviewed Miss Melissa Chen and uh, it was a brilliant interview. And she was saying, actually, it's very, very difficult to find out what's happening in Hong Kong, because unless you're on the ground, then things become distorted. And obviously it's difficult to get what the real message is out of China. Mm -hmm. So could you explain to us what is actually happening in Hong Kong? Okay, so these protests started back in, uh, I believe, end of May or early June when a extradition bill was proposed. And the extradition bill was, a lot of people in Hong Kong saw that as a veiled attempt to be able to extradite people from Hong Kong to mainland China. And just with, uh, with people feeling like China's been encroaching on the rights of Hong Kongers, it sort of broke the camel's back. That was sort of the final straw for a lot of people. And so they started protesting. And it's funny because what could have been put to rest very easily, they ended up withdrawing the bill formally anyway, not too long ago. But if they had done that months ago, this wouldn't have spiraled into what it is now. Now they have five demands. There's been incredibly harsh police brutality. Uh, there's been basically every single week um, there's been protests and they've had up to, up to half a million people marching in the streets in pouring rain in extremely hot weather. And it's just incredible determination on on the part of these protesters, incredible organization. And it's funny because uh, you're starting to see other movements take tactics from the Hong Kong protesters because of how effective they've been in uh, just staying unified and staying on message. I've never covered anything like it. It's extremely well organized and 
it's not the kind of solidarity or unification you see in a lot of movements. A lot of people will try to co-opt it and um, push their own messages, but they have their five demands now. And Which are what? So they want full withdrawal of the extradition bill, which finally just recently happened. They want uh, dual universal suffrage for the legislative council and uh, I think one of the other, I can't remember what the other um, government body is, but they want to be able to choose their own leaders rather than having uh, the Chinese Communist Party choose who they can elect from. Okay. Um, they, want, they want the classification of rioters to be dropped um, because basically in order to protest in Hong Kong, you have to, appeal, you have to apply for a letter of no objection. And if you get that letter of no objection, then you can protest. Um, but what they tried, tried to do to stop the protest was not, not issue any of the letters of no objection. Mm. So if they don't, then they get charged with rioting. A riot, riot charge can put you in prison for up to 10 years. So they want the classification of rioting, of riots to be dropped. They want amnesty for the, um, the arrested protesters. How many is that? I think that's, oh, and the last one is they want an independent investigation into the police for the conduct that they've been using. They've been using expired tear gas. They've been using excessive force. They've been firing tear gas in enclosed spaces, which is extremely dangerous. They've been targeting journalists. Um, when they enacted the anti-mask law, uh, the idea was that you're not allowed to be wearing a mask when you're protesting. Hmm. Um, but they... Made, they were supposed to make exceptions for people who need masks for work, which would be journalists. However, they were still abusing that, and they were even people who weren't protesting, they would arrest them for wearing masks, or they would intimidate them. Um, they told journalists that they couldn't wear a mask and you know, threatened to, to rip, about, rip them off. And yeah, it's just uh, really no, no accountability on, the, on behalf of the police. And Basically, the government has been running defense for them and trying to justify all of the tactics they've been using. And it's, it's just, it's, it's kind of gone out of control. The, the public in Hong Kong has sort of turned against, like, one of the main things a social movement needs is public support. And one of the, the best ways to squash a movement is to turn the public against them. It's extremely hard for them to do that when the police are also uh, harassing, intimidating, and brutalizing regular citizens, not just protesters. So even if they do try to put undercover police into the protests and have them either beat people up, throw Molotov cocktails, or cause general chaos, um, the, the overwhelming majority of the public support is still with the Hong Kong protesters. Like there was one instance, there uh, they were trying to kettle the protesters. And uh, basically, instead of because they couldn't run away, they were they were basically cornered, and a bunch of residents opened their doors to let them into the building and hide them. You don't really see that in any other protest mm. anywhere else. It's really incredible. And the Chinese government have accused you know the, the protesters of violence, of you know mm -hmm. you know vandalism, all the rest of it. Is this true? Is it the vandalism is interesting because it's very targeted. It's mostly targeted at pro-Chinese uh, companies. China, uh, companies that come out against the protests and then companies that are owned by the mainland. Um, I'm sure there's been a couple here and there that I, they, they have mistakenly targeted some and they actually will <laughs> release an apology, <laughs> <laughs> which is really sweet if you yeah. think about it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, there has been violence where people who will go and either 
they've had issues with people going and taking photos of the faces of protesters. And of course, in that situation, a lot of people fear retribution from the government. So they'll ask if they don't get the person to delete it off their phone, they'll usually beat them up. They'll, uh, yeah, they'll spray paint them. Same thing if they find people trying to tear down the Lenin walls and, and people who have run into, almost tried to run over protesters. Actually, some people have run over protesters and they pull them out of the car and beat them up. So yeah, there has been violence from the protesters as well. And how do you see this going? Because it seems that it's been organically, like you said, happening and growing and mushrooming. Surely China, great human rights record, are not going to let this go and keep growing because it undermines their authority. Yes, and I think it's, uh, you can't really put this genie back in the bottle at this point. So I do think they're waiting for something and then they're going yeah, to come down pretty hard on it. Uh, there's various ways they can do that. Um, a lot of people have been speculating already because um, at the, the People's Liberation Army barracks, there's been footage of um, people within the barracks dressed up like protesters running around as if they're training to like be undercover protesters. Um, there's also the, uh, the emergency ordinance powers that can pretty much deport foreigners, journalists, and it will enact all kinds of, it's basically martial law at that point. Um, the the anti-mask law was part of an emergency ordinance, so it, it kind of shows that they're not opposed to using that. Um, so I, I really, I'm, I'm worried it is going to be a pretty brutal crackdown. And that's why a lot of the protesters are asking for help from other countries. But, I mean, they're up against an extremely powerful government, and I don't really know how well that's going to go. And what was it like for you being on the ground as a foreign journalist in this kind of environment? You kind of get royalty treatment, which I am not used to as a journalist <laughs> among protesters. It's wild. Like, they really take care of the press there. Um, I'm sure I also had sort of Western privilege. If they saw I was from the, from the U.S., they were like, oh, thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for covering this. People would always come up to you offering you water and food. And if it starts raining, they'll come over and put your umbrella over you until you can get your rain cover out. It's... They they really know how to how to use public opinion to support their cause. And again, it's like also the Hong Kong these people are just very nice. They in are general, extremely anyway. polite. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's it's I, I get I feel spoiled every time I go over there to cover things. And they you know it's they're really just grateful people are paying attention to it. They really want especially America. They just want some help. <laughs> And it's, it's, it's amazing that you say that, that the way they treat, because they're grateful, because I suppose they realize that they put their lives on the line here. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's a definition of bravery. And then extremely courageous. You know, yeah. And, the, you know, the, the nicer they are to you, the more welcoming, the more likely there is their messages to spread. But it's not looking like a lot of Western countries are supporting them. No, but I think... Um there's a lot of economic interests in Hong Kong, so I think once those things start to be threatened, then Western countries will start paying a bit more attention. But I think uh, right now, a lot of countries are <laughs> just not... I mean, it's, it's kind of crazy. Like, in the U.S., you have a couple, couple uh, lawmakers who will pay attention and support their, uh, express their support for the protests. Mm. Um, however, there isn't a whole lot more being done. The uh, U.S. Congress is trying to pass the uh, Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act, but that's kind of just like a broad condemning of human rights violations. 
Uh, the other one that they're trying to pass is the Protect Act, which would it would ban the exporting of non-lethal crowd control uh, rounds to Hong Kong because of it being misused. So those are just two things that are kind of being done, but I don't know how much else is going to be done unless money starts getting involved. It's quite interesting that Donald Trump is very much at odds with China and has been since he started running. But it's not an issue that he's talked much about, is it? No, in fact, it was kind of strange because a lot of people in Hong Kong will you know, express their their want for Donald Trump to do something. Um, and then on the Chinese National Day, October 1st, which was one of the largest protests in Hong Kong. They called it the National Day of Mourning. Donald Trump tweeted, congratulations to President Xi Jinping on 70 years. And as everyone was kind of like uh, disappointed at that point. It's like, you're congratulating Xi Jinping on a communist regime. It's like, and well, meanwhile, all of these, you have a, a, a lot of protesters in Hong Kong, like waving American flags and supporting, uh, expressing support for Donald Trump or expressing support for the U.S., in general. And it's like, I don't want to, I don't want them to, <laughs> they're already disappointed. I just want to tell them like, don't hold your breath for him to get involved. He's not really paying attention. He said something uh, the other week saying, oh, well, you know, it's not as bad as it was at the beginning. It's like, you're obviously not paying attention because it's way worse than it was at the beginning. So yeah, I don't know if he's going to end up doing anything about it. I guess, you know, he ran on the platform of America first. Exactly, so his yeah. battle with China is over America's interest as yeah. opposed to Hong Kong. So people in Hong Kong, Hong Kong shouldn't hold their breath. No, no, I don't think, I don't think he's going to do much. Mm. And on that uplifting note, <laughs> um, uh, I was going to ask you about um, the, your, the style of reporting that you do, which mm. is a lot of it is on the ground kind of, I'm here. There's an argument to be made that this kind of, I don't know if it's, is it, do they call it gonzo journalism? Is that, or did I just invent that in my head? Uh, the, there is a there is a gonzo aspect, but I think gonzo is a little more. Um, I think there's a little more advocacy in gonzo journalism. Okay. Yeah. So, well, you, with your style of journalism, is there not an argument to say that by its very definition, like eyewitness testimony is mm -hmm. extremely unobjective, right? The person who is right there in the moment when something happens actually doesn't have a broader objective perspective. Uh, do, you see, do you see where I'm yeah, going with yeah. this? Yeah, I mean, before I was doing this, I was mostly doing raw footage. And the thing mm. about that is you really can't lie if you just let let it play out. You, you trust your eyes more than you trust people telling you what's going mm. on. Mm. Um, I think that's kind of what our audience appreciates is that we just let the footage and the people do the talking and not telling our, uh, not get, using our own conjecture or our own analysis to sort of... Uh, push an agenda or anything like that. And because honestly, like at the end of the day, that was really kind of what disillusioned me with the media was seeing something with my own eyes and then hearing it reported in a totally different way. So a lot of people say, oh, you know, it's boring. It's very monotonous and stuff like that. But a lot of people really appreciate that and, <laughs> you know, are willing to take a little bit of monotony if it means they get the truth. And we've seen now with these protests with, you know, Hong Kong, Catalonia, um, that yellow vest, the yellow vest, absolutely in France, and it just seems to be that there just seems to be these uprisings. Is this is there more of this happening, or are we just becoming more aware of it? I think this point in time right now, there's a lot going on, um, and everything is due to different circumstances. But at the same time, I feel like we see it a lot more just because of how technology 
has progressed and we're able to see on Twitter the protests happening in Lebanon and Iraq and like all of these other places. And a lot of people do want to draw a connection and be like, oh, it's just the whole world's going to shit. And it's, <laughs> you know, there's some truth to that because there's uh, all kinds of, you know, there are individual circumstances in these different countries that have made these happen. And then you kind of also just have to look at just a, a global scale, some of the trends, you know, a lot of it has to do with uh, standard of living, unemployment, ec- economy, um, and, you know, a lot of people are are not happy with their governments for different reasons. Like the, the reason that the LFS are unhappy with their government is different than why people in Lebanon are unhappy with their government. And so you kind of have to look at those individual situations to, yeah. And do you think the reason they've been able to mobilize so effectively is because of social media, whereas before it would be so much more difficult to communicate, to mobilize, to organize. But now with social media, it's, Oh, it's super easy with social media. Uh, However, there are a lot of movements that still have issues with things like Facebook taking down their events, CLOS uh, in particular. That's why um, in Hong Kong they've been using Telegram, and Telegram has actually come up with new features to help help them organize and stay, stay secure during the the organizing of their protests. So in uh, in Hong Kong, they have a, a bunch of different Telegram channels that tell people that it, it, they spread flyers, they tell people what's happening. And, you know, you do also have to realize that, of course, people are going to get into those and try to spread pro- propaganda or, you know, fake information. They've had issues where, you know, they have police creating their own Telegram groups and then trying to sp- spread false information that way. And it's funny because they actually figured it out because they were using Mandarin instead of Cantonese. Oh, right. <laughs> well, that's a pretty big mistake. Isn't it? <laughs> a little bit incompetent. I was going to ask you, are you planning to be covering the 2020 election campaigns in a similar way to the way you covered 2016? Yeah, it'll probably be more uh, more in more in depth because 2016 I was mostly talking to people and writing the occasional article and doing mostly f- photojournalism. This time we're going to be doing a lot more video interviews with people and yeah, it's going to be a lot more in depth. I look forward to watching that. Uh, that'll be very yeah. interesting. And what do you make of of the situation now? I mean, uh, I'm a, by British standards in the center politically, uh, and I look at the what the Democrats are talking about, and I, I, I'd vote for Donald Trump over any of them. <laughs> well, not any of them. I mean, Andrew Yang and Tulsi Gabbard are mm. the, the kind of outsiders and if they were to do well which at this point seems unlikely then they'd certainly get my vote but you know elizabeth warren talking about the rights of transgender mexican illegal immigrants you just like it's not where ordinary people are at uh, what do you make of the the stay of the democratic party and and the upcoming 2020 elections yeah there's they've they've got a big battle coming up and the question is like who can actually stand a chance against donald trump hmm. um and I mean, I've got my opinion of who I don't think stands a chance. And it's, it's really, it comes down to, is it somebody who's going to play his game? Is it somebody who's going to play the populism card? Or is it somebody who's going to try to rise above it? Is it going to be, is the DNC going to make the same mistake and try to rig it for their establishment candidate? And are they not, like, you would assume they'd be smart enough to know that. Who's the establishment candidate at this point? Is it Joe Biden? Yes, but, uh, but, but, the, but Obama also, won't come out and support him. So yeah, he's not but I don't really... think it's just by I think they're still waiting to figure out who their establishment candidate is, because I don't think Biden, you know, even though he's polling pretty high right now, I just don't think he's people think he can it. win. No, no, he's um, not make it. I think there's a lot of uh, 
I think whoever's going to win needs to be able to pull back the votes that went from Democrat to Trump last time, or not even to Trump, but people who just didn't want to vote for Hillary or who just voted against Hillary, because that was a huge issue. Like there were so many people who just didn't want Hillary for a lot of reasons. And I think if the if the Democrats can't understand that they're doomed to the same mistakes. And so I think whoever has a chance is going to have to be able to take some of those those votes that went to Trump, either out of protest or out of economic reasons that the Democrats were ignoring. Um, so I think it's it's not going to necessarily be a uh, the person who stands a chance isn't necessarily going to be pretty far left. Um, I don't think uh, <laughs> I don't think Americans in general will get on board with that. However, we're talking about doomed to make the same mistakes. Is it fair to say that they're making the same mistakes all over again? In fact, they seem to be making them harder yeah. and it's, worse. It blows me away. It's like they, they either don't want to learn or they're just clinging to what little they have left. I don't know. I think they are going to make a lot of the same mistakes because they're just so used to their status quo. Hmm. I'm curious, there's probably about eight or nine candidates currently in the race. I think mm-hmm. Beto wrote, dropped out this morning. Yeah, oh, that's right. Yeah. Uh, so you talk about bringing back the voters who either didn't vote or voted for Donald Trump. Conventionally, the argument has been that Bernie Sanders speaks to a lot of those people, actually, uh, in, in the Rust Belt, etc. Mm-hmm. He's just had a heart attack. I'm not sure you come back from that during a presidential election campaign. Yeah. yeah, Uh, So who are these people that you think might bring some of those people back? Um, I think Yang is hitting a lot of the economic issues Mm. that people care about. I think uh, Tulsi is hitting a lot of the foreign policy issues that people care about. This is like a centrist bubble right here. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think Bernie Sanders hits a lot of also economic issues, but um, I think people aren't necessarily going to agree with him on some of the social stance social Mm. issue stances he takes um i think uh i mean in america it's just this whole this whole um healthcare system thing is it's a mess like i don't think anybody really knows what they want out of it and they're scared of taxes going up they don't know if it's going to work and it's 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 a mess so i don't i really don't know who would be the one other than like people who can can speak to the same economic issues that Trump was talking about. Well, let me put you on the spot before we ask our final question, which okay. is, it sounds to me like you think Donald Trump's going to win again. I think, uh, I, I think uh, he's in a pretty good position to, if, uh, if the Democrats make the same mistakes, yeah. And penultimate question before we ask <laughs> the final question. It, I know it's, it's a bit of a tricky one, but how should the Democrats attack Trump? I don't think they should focus on attacking Trump, honestly. I think they they give him more power that way. I think they've got to, I don't want to say ignore him, um, because you don't want to ignore somebody who's in a position of power who can, you know, you can do a lot of, uh, do a lot of, make a lot of moves that make a lot of uh, changes and can affect a lot of people. But I don't think attacking him is the way to address the problems and to actually get support behind the other other side. 
Mm. It's like, uh, I can't remember which cartoon I remember watching where there was this the monster and the more rockets you fired at him, the bigger he got. Yeah. It's a bit like Donald yeah. Trump, isn't it? I agree he always that, loves yeah. a highbrow comparison. <laughs> <laughs> we are nothing if not an intellectual channel. Hey, you made a dick joke earlier this, <laughs> this so don't you start. Anyway, we've got one more question for you, Emily, which is the same question we ask all our guests, which is what is the one thing that no one is talking about that mm. we should be talking about? And you took a deep breath, as I said it, so yeah. I'm now full of anticipation. <laughs> Yeah. Oh man, there's, I mean, there's just a lot in general with, um, I mean, a lot of the stuff that I cover is just, is social movements, things that the U.S. media doesn't tend to cover a lot, but it sounds like you're having a lot of conversations with people who, who talk about these things. Um, I think it's, for the most part, there's, um, I mean, I can talk to what a U.S. audience probably would want to hear more about, and that's kind of, uh, issues with um, lower economic class and how they're they're being largely ignored by um, certain political... But it's not just America, that no. one. Yeah. Because yeah. no, no, no. it's a big like, issue in this country. Yeah, like things like addiction, um, the pharmaceutical industry, like really messing people's lives up is, is a really huge issue. And that's actually one that I really want to tackle going forward in my work. Well, we look forward to seeing that. And if people want to follow you and your work with Subverse, Subverse News, where do they go for that? Um, so Subverse News is um, at on Subverse on Twitter. It's also youtube.com slash Subverse News. Um, they can follow me at Momes Molly on Twitter, M-O-M-E-S-M-O-L-L-I. And um, yeah, I mean, we've also got a website, subverse.net, where they can see our videos and our articles and catch up with, um, with our coverage and keep an eye on it. Well, thanks for coming on the show and we're going to follow your work very closely and cool. keep up with it. Thanks for watching, guys. We'll see you in a week's time with another brilliant episode. Take care. See you next week. Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.